Welcome to the Sustainability Agenda podcast. My name is Fregel Byrne. Every week I speak to leading sustainability thinkers and practitioners, scientists, economists, NGOs, business leaders and investors. We discuss the sustainability imperative, the key challenges, the latest thinking, and what's working in sustainability, resilience and regeneration. If you would like a transcript of this episode, or indeed any earlier episode, please email me at fergal at the sustainabilityagenda.com. Before we begin this week's episode, here's a message about our partner, Global Witness. Global Witness, a pioneering campaigning NGO that exposes the environmental and human rights abuses by some of the world's biggest companies and most powerful political figures. For 25 years, they've campaigned against the exploitation of the Earth's natural resources, the destruction of indigenous peoples, and corruption that has siphoned billions of dollars from the poorest countries. Global Witness doesn't just expose the abuse of power, it works to transform the systems that allow this abuse to flourish unchecked. Find out more at globalwitness.org. I'm very pleased to welcome Professor Stephen Masakura to the podcast. Stephen is a scholar of US and international history with a particular focus on political economy, international development, US foreign relations and environmentalism. His latest book, The Mismeasure of Progress, Economic Growth and Its Critics, explores various critiques of economic growth across the 20th century. Well, thank you very much, Stephen, for joining me today on the Sustainability Agenda podcast. Uh, thank you so much for having me. It's great to be here. So um, I've got your latest book here in front of me. I'm very much looking forward to talking to you about the mismeasure of progress, economic growth and its critics. Um, uh, topics which I've touched on before, and uh, but uh, you go into some depth into some some very interesting areas which I'm looking forward to discussing and and teasing out also the relationship between uh, economic growth and environmental issues and so forth. Again, topics I've discussed before. Um, But maybe just before we start, can you perhaps tell us a little bit about your background and your kind of current work focus, Stephen? Yes, I'm a historian uh, by training. I am an associate professor in the Department of International Studies at Indiana University here in the USA. And what I'm interested in as a historian is the ways in which important ideas like economic growth or sustainable development came into being across the 20th century world and the types of politics and political conflicts that they engendered uh, across the world. My first book looked at the origins of sustainable development as an idea and the role of environmental activists in attempting to integrate uh, ideas about environmental protection with the desire for so many across the world to pursue rapid economic development. And my most recent book, as you mentioned, is called The Mismeasure of Progress, and it examines the history of economic growth though told through the history of those who criticized and doubted the virtues of the notion of limitless growth, and in particular, those who criticized the ways in which growth was measured in conventional accounting techniques and proposed alternative ways of of measuring and thus valuing the world. 
Yeah, very interesting, very interesting. Now, uh, I like at the beginning just to get set the scene a little bit. Um, we're, we're still in this uh, COVID crisis. And uh, well, we've, we've had these uh, various heat waves and floods and uh, pretty extreme weather uh, culminating, uh, increased momentum and awareness, I'd say, of, of the various environmental crises. I'm just wondering what in particular is on your mind right now? What, what keeps you awake? What worries you the most? from an environmental and sustainable perspective? There's certainly, as you mentioned, a number of things that could keep one awake at night. And we here in the US, like you in the UK and and so many others have dealt with um, really high temperatures and and really quite remarkable flooding um, this summer. But I think what strikes me less so the material transformations taking place across the world is once again, the absence of political will and kind of organized political action on the scale that's necessary to redress and respond to the myriad crises that we now face in the climate emergency. I think in many ways we could interpret the international struggle to cooperate meaningfully over the COVID-19 pandemic and in a significant way to this day with the uh, kind of vast inequality in access to vaccines as something of a a dry run and example of how the challenges related to global climate change have played out and are going to play out in the future. And I'm afraid from my perspective, it it points in a a really bleak direction is that I, I don't think the leaders of the wealthy countries have done nearly enough to work with the countries of the global south to help them prepare for the onset of climate change. Likewise, we've seen really ineffective cooperation among the wealthy countries themselves during the pandemic and in many ways over the uh, politics of climate as well, which I think are still stuck in a a very protean and early stage when we need to be much further along than we actually are. Right, right. What makes you optimistic? Are there there trends? Are there moments? Are there things unfolding that that, uh, that there's momentum on on the legal front dealing maybe with corporations? There's uh, 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 Joe Biden uh, still unfolding, you know, uh, Green New Deal infrastructure, uh, certainly a rather different perspective than the previous administration. other things like that, there, 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 uh, some people uh, uh, feel that there is uh, some, some, tr- some change coming. So uh, what makes you optimistic? Are, are there certain trends at the moment? Are there things that you see that, 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 that do make you optimistic about change in the future? Yes, I, I think one source of optimism is the extent to which we've seen mobilization on a global scale from a variety of different activist groups, but in particular from relatively young activists uh, around the climate issue. You know, uh, of course, we've had the, the rise of kind of celebrity climate activists like Greta and others, um, but, but sort of looking around at the students that I teach um, in university and those even a little younger than them, I, I see the extent to which climate is very much at the forefront of their political identities and it's something that is very much at the front of their mind there's a a degree of organization in the climate movement that i think is quite strong now compared to what it was even five or ten years ago and as a result you have in civil society a, a really strong and increasingly vocal push for transformational policies and approaches to contend with the climate crisis. 
you know, in the United States, the, the Biden administration is certainly a change from the Trump administration in terms of its orientation on environmental policies. But I think absent the kind of groundswell of support for really aggressive climate policies on the left, and in particular, the young left, the administration would not have made even the, the kind of few moves it has done so far in, in the realm of things like climate finance and, and climate infrastructure and, and things of that sort. And so I do take some optimism and enthusiasm from watching the kind of growing mobilization, um, again, not just in this country, but across the world on climate change. I think that does bode well for our future. Yeah, yeah. Now, before we talk about your, your, your latest book, um, you mentioned sustainable development. This is the sustainability agenda. Sustainability is quite a capacious uh, term, uh, incorporating uh, many different perspectives. Some people argue that the whole idea of sustainable development is an oxymoron. Um, uh, people have said to me, you know, sustainability is past sustainability uh is you know doesn't truly uh, exist in, in any meaningful way um what's your sense uh, I, I, a big topic and, and a subject of, of, of one of your early books i know um what's your sense just if you get of, of the usefulness of the idea of sustainable development so, sorry it's a big topic i know but just wanted to get a sense of that before going on to particular questions about about uh economic growth yeah, it is a big question. But if you'll permit me, I'd like to to just sort of take the conversation back a, a few decades to the origins of the phrase sustainable development in the 1970s and early 1980s. And there's really one important aspect of the origins of sustainable development as a phrase that I think has often been lost, but is worth reclaiming, which is that in the, the kind of famous early definitions of sustainable development, uh, there's a, a market focus on promoting a, a kind of intertemporal equality, which is to say, to develop kind of moral considerations for future generations who have not yet been born. That's very much in the kind of famous definition of sustainable development from the Brundtland Commission about um, ensuring subsequent generations have um, kind of equal access to a healthful and productive um, nature and, and things of that sort. Um, and while we still very much think of sustainability in terms of future generations, one thing that we do less of that, that was really critical in the 1970s and 1980s from the activists who used the term was it wasn't just about equality for future generations, but sustainable development was meant to draw attention to the existing inequalities in the world, um, especially those between the, the wealthy countries of the global north in the 1970s and those of the global south or the first and second world versus the third world as the terms were used then. Um, and, and to acknowledge that in order to create a more just, equitable and environmentally friendly world, um, the focus uh, need not just be on future generations, but on ensuring that all people can at first live with their basic needs met with a degree of basic protections to pursue their lives as they see fit um, and without the th threats of, of poverty looming over them. And so in the early discussions over sustainability, these kinds of, of justice and equity issues, uh, again, between North and South were really to the forefront. And I think it's a, it's a shame that that notion has kind of fallen out um, over the years. And I'm, I'm actually really glad to see so many in the climate movement put those sorts of issues front and center once again. 
um, because it, as activists recognized in the 1970s and 1980s, um, talk about environmental protection, conservation, preservation, anything like that, um, had really limited purchase in countries in the global south that were facing endemic poverty, trying to overcome centuries of exploitation. And to take those concerns seriously meant, um, first, to some extent, promoting development, albeit in a, in a different way, but ensuring that sustainability would not mean just kind of entrenching the international political status quo into the future. And so if sustainability is going to have any kind of viable teeth to it in the future, I think that kind of angle of international justice and equality needs to be front and center once again. Yeah, the, it, very interesting uh, to see the the momentum around environmental justice and environmental justice groups um, around the world. Um, as as you say, um, it, it's a gnarly question as well. This one of you know how to balance the uh, needs, economic needs of of, of current uh, populations with future populations and uh, long term thinking and trying to you know make sure that the planet is is uh, we leave it as in as good a condition as possible for future generations when at the same time there are people living in abject poverty and in uh in, in desperate circumstances today in the world absolutely and and we can um if, if you just sort of look at some of the developments in the last year or two in the realm of climate finance and, and that is to say you know, basically who is going to be funding investments in new technologies and transitional technologies um, across the world to promote cleaner forms of energy, less wasteful production processes and things of that sort. Um, climate finance used to be a kind of the issue that negotiators and climate negotiations just would, would sort of kick the can down the road for over and over again because it was such a thorny one. The United States didn't want to put up much money at all. Even some European countries were quite hesitant. The Global South seemed to be making demands in the eyes of the Northern countries that were just outrageous. Um, but there's been a, a lot of really, uh, I think, positive signs about increasing climate finance to the Global South doing it, um, if not in a government-to-government way, at least with government structuring, um, more private finance with kind of less onerous debt loads um, than it has come with in the past, and just much more scale of investment, um, still kind of short of what we would ideally like to see. But nonetheless, there's, I think, been um, really significant investments on that front that, that do yeah, point yeah. to... It's, it's, inter- it's, it's interesting you, you say that because at the same time, um, there, there there does seem to be uh, considerable uh, work going on, momentum structuring how... So this question of where the money is coming from, it seems to be tremendously important and, and to, 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 you know, uh, bring in all the private finance uh, the World Bank and, and other multilateral organizations, uh, financial organizations seem to be putting together these protocols that de-risk private finance and uh, escort it, as it were, in the words of Daniela Gabor, into, right. into you know, uh, the, the global south, into environmental uh, investments and so forth, which seems to be, a uh, again, a tremendous momentum on, on that front. And at the same time, uh, it is quite problematic uh, in terms of the uh, bringing the, the kind of market structures into these countries and 
investment structures and, you know, uh, the, 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 the ways in which private finance is uh, protected. Absolutely. You know, it's, it's interesting that for all the talk of um, the Green New Deal here in the United States and, and what ultimately a, a Biden climate policy might look like, uh, I think there's still too little attention put on the huge strides the U.S. government could make. If the Biden administration really wanted to make a significant impact on climate change in the U.S. and in the future, they could do so um, in a really sort of transformational way by putting a lot of emphasis on government financing and spending. Um, in the U.S. New Deal in the 1930s, um, there was a, a too little known um, uh, entity called the Reconstruction Finance Corporation, or the RFC, that the Roosevelt administration set up um, in 1932, um, which basically was just a, a government investment agency, the closest thing the United States has ever really had to that, um, just providing financial support to state and local governments, to businesses, to banks, with very, very low interest loans to basically spur new uh, investments in infrastructure. And it, were the Biden administration to try to replicate something like that, um, they could take a lot of the complexities out of, and, and frankly, a lot of the, the ethical and um, sort of political problems surrounding private finance by just putting a ton of money into investments um, for new energy technologies in the U.S., um, to, to use investments to um, kind of defer patent agreements and things of that sort to make technologies cheaper and more available and, and to yeah. directly invest in other countries yeah. as well. Yeah. I think in they interesting. circumvent and have a, a really big bang for their bunk were they able to, to just focus on the investment side yeah. of things. Sh shouldn't that really be something that we should be looking at at a multilateral level? If you think of the Bretton Woods, the way you know the world came together and set up these global institutions, you know, after the war and so forth, you know, this question, uh, vast sums of money, uh, as you say, rather than national governments, is should there, do we need a kind of uh, 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 environmental, financial, global environmental, financial infrastructure, some, you know, like maybe some kind of green SDRs, things like that. Is that something that you're familiar with? Do you know, if there's any work going on on that, those kind of ideas? Yeah. And I think um, there was, Back the UNF um, Triple the Framework Convention on Climate Change, created this Green Climate Fund back in 2010. That was a kind of gesture in this direction, but in, in many ways, it's it's got too little funding. It, it's not robust enough. You know, the the virtue of the Paris Accords were to create this kind of decentralized, choose your own adventure model of um, climate politics, which limited the kind of international bureaucracy and accountability, basically, so that the United States could could join an international climate accord without having to submit to the U.S. Senate, um, where the Republican Party would just um, try to block it. Um, and while the virtue of that is that it makes it really kind of easy for countries to feel like they're doing quite a bit on climate change, the, the downside is that it really lacks the kind of institutional architecture that you're describing that was certainly present in, in, in Bretton Woods. And I think ideally what we have moving forward is a kind of really robust kind of multilateral network of institutions and organizations um, that focus on green financing, direct public investments that are transparent and, and easily followed, 
um, through things either like uh, green special drawing rights or a, a much more robust green climate fund, a much more robust adaptation fund that provides more direct emergency relief funds and things of that sort um, to enable the kind of long-term thinking and frankly, sort of organizational administrative work that these projects often demand. Yeah. I mean, one of the, yeah. the virtues, I guess, one would say of the private system is that it allows investors to follow price signals and to react more quickly and to invest in areas with projects that are more likely to succeed. But the obvious downside to that is that there's this massive coordination problem that it becomes really difficult to figure out what's working in one place, what's not working in another place, to try to ensure that all places, no matter of the risk involved, do get the investments that they need. And I, I can't foresee how that would take place absent a, a much more robust kind of organizational system at the multilateral level, yeah, um, yeah. be it through the UNFCCC or some other kind of agreement. It's, it's interesting because, as you say, the uh, the the uh, precedent, the COVID precedent, is not a good one in the, in, in in terms of uh, cooperation. Um, and 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 indeed, what you see going on now, the Biden response uh, to China and so forth, again, not a very good uh, precedent, really, uh, or way forward. Doesn't look like in terms of finding grounds to cooperate and uh, working together. Yeah, absolutely. And you know what's what's kind of um, interesting in a historical perspective is that at the kind of dawn of the environmental movement in the late 1960s and early 1970s, there was a kind of widespread recognition that there needed to be um, at a very fundamental level, kind of widespread international cooperation with everyone. Um, and, and so a good illustration of that is that the United States and the Soviet Union made environmental protection one of the key elements of their detente agreements in the early 1970s, because they recognized that the environment was a truly global issue and that the superpowers needed to cooperate with one another to improve it. Um, and, and likewise is that every, there was widespread recognition of the need for really robust institutional and organizational forms to kind of manage environmental issues. Um, so a, a great example of this is um, the, the famous American statesman, George Kennan, who was so instrumental in the early Cold War and crafting the United States' containment strategy towards the Soviet Union, by the early 1970s, becomes so concerned about environmental issues that in the early 70s, he, he writes an article in Foreign Affairs, the sort of mainstream uh, journal for uh, American foreign policy thought, arguing that the world needs to create an international environmental agency um, that has very little political influence that is uh, run by basically a transnational network of scientists and scholars who will manage the most important resources, will sort of track global oil and copper and magnesium use, determine when the world is using too much, make policy recommendations, and if need be, interventions to ensure that governments don't waste resources and things of that sort, which is frankly a far more invasive and interventionist international organization than has ever really existed before. And certainly something we don't really see being discussed now. But at the moment of the kind of early stages of the recognition of a global environmental crisis, discussing these sorts of issues and, and prioritizing environmental, uh, sorry, international cooperation 
was really at the forefront of a lot of people's minds, including those who you would not tab, like George Kennan, as being sort of, uh, you know, major environmentalists. Yeah, no, it's fascinating. Let's take a brief break to hear about an organization we support. Global Witness, a pioneering campaigning NGO that exposes the environmental and human rights abuses by some of the world's biggest companies and most powerful political figures. For 25 years, they've campaigned against the exploitation of the Earth's natural resources, the destruction of indigenous peoples, and corruption that has siphoned billions of dollars from the poorest countries. Global Witness doesn't just expose the abuse of power, it works to transform the systems that allow this abuse to flourish unchecked. Find out more at globalwitness.org. And now we're back to today's episode. Um, also reading your book, uh, your latest book about, about economic growth, I was surprised to see just how many voices there were critical of of, of uh, GDP as a measure of economic growth in various, in various different dimensions and just how much uh, focus there was on on these environmental questions, even you know from the Club of, of Rome and so forth, from you know conservative type economists and so forth, um, and, and and from what you're talking about there as well. And then I sort of I was kind of asking what happened because <laughs> there was tremendous you know uh, vision and and concern and and as, as you, you 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 say across the political spectrum, really uh, a surprising number of, of voices really uh, called out the, the, these issues um i mean maybe we can talk about it a little bit in terms of the the the, the critics of, of of uh gdp i guess that's a, a good place to start you know what, what what they were talking about and why but it, it, it's interesting uh and 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 uh yeah kind of uh quite dramatic really um I, and i guess it's in the news a little bit again because uh uh, uh an analyst did some uh research on on the uh limits to growth and uh recently uh quite worrying uh what what that the actual forecast and so forth seem to be broadly correct right right yeah and it, it you know it was really surprising for me because i my first book was on sustainable development and one of the things i came away with from that book was um just sort of a, a real uh, curiosity about how and why the notion of limitless economic growth became so popular um, it, it seemed to transcend ideological divides. The Soviet Union pursued rapid economic growth just as assiduously as the United States pursued um, economic growth. Uh, the UK and France pursued economic growth in the 20th century just as robustly as Zambia and India pursued economic growth. And it, it really kind of got me wondering sort of where the notion of growth came from. And as I started to research this new book, trying to sort of identify the origins of growth, I actually kept finding examples from across the 20th century of, of many different um, people, thinkers, activists, scholars, economists, and others who were actually not so sanguine about growth, who criticized growth on a, a number of grounds. And a, a number of them really came to the fore in the 1960s and the 1970s. And I think there's there's kind of two chief reasons why this era becomes so important for people criticizing and questioning the pursuit of growth. Um, one is that growth seems like it's not as wonderful as it was cracked up to be. 
And this becomes evident in a number of different places in a number of different ways. And so a great example of this is the environmental side, which is to say in the 1940s and the 1950s and the 1960s, as countries across the world were experiencing really high economic growth rates measured in, in gross national product and GNP. By the 1960s, it became very clear that pursuing rapid economic growth, and especially when it's fueled by fossil fuels, it, it generates all sorts of unintended environmental consequences, some of which can be quite visible. And so in this era, there are a number of high profile oil spills. Uh, the Torrey Canyon um, is one of the most notable. There's all sorts of um, very visible forms of um, air and water pollution. There's many instances of, of um, kind of housewives here in the UK and elsewhere sort of turning on their faucet only to find brown sludgy water coming out and being concerned about those sorts of things. And the result of all of this is that um, uh, kind of a, what had been a, a handful of environmental figures um, really grows into a widespread movement criticizing the ways in which growth seems to bring downsides, um, you know, like environmental degradation, like pollution, things of that sort. Um, at the same time, though, um, there is an increasing sort of realization among many um, that not only is growth not all that it was cracked up to be, um, that growth, in fact, does not solve the problems that many people anticipated it would. And so that is to say, not only does growth deliver unintended consequences, it doesn't even really achieve the goals that um, its advocates set out for. And so for example, um, there's a Pakistani economist named Mahbub ul Haq, who I write quite a bit about in the book. And he is uh, a really kind of trained as a classic macroeconomist. He is trained as something of a Keynesian planner. He actually um, participates in drafting five-year plans for his home country of Pakistan. He works for the Ministry of Planning in the 1960s. And he believes, like so many at the time in the 1960s, that if the country generates really high economic growth rates, poverty will necessarily fall inequality in the country will wither away. A rising tide will lift all boats, as the old growth saying goes. And what shocks Mahbub ul Haq by the late 1960s is that that is not the case. For much of the 1960s, Pakistan has breakneck growth, really impressive high GNP growth rates. But at the end of the decade, it still has really high poverty. It has, in fact, increased its unemployment as people in the countryside have been kicked off their land to make room for monoculture plantations and move to cities where they can't find durable work. Likewise, rather than eliminating inequality, rapid growth seems in Pakistan to have increased inequality, as many of the gains of growth in the 1960s, Hawk argues, consolidate in, into the hands of the wealthiest families in the country. And so by the late 1960s, Hack begins to criticize growth on grounds that it failed to deliver on its basic promises. It, it did not eliminate poverty and in fact generated greater unemployment. And it seemed to increase inequality as well. And again, these all become really evident, not only in, in data and on spreadsheets that policymakers are looking at, but people simply look around them and, and see the extent to which the promise of kind of abundance for all 
um, really doesn't uh, come to fruition in the way that many expect it. You see many civil rights activists in the United States, for instance, making similar arguments. Uh, Martin Luther King, throughout um, the late 1960s, will talk at length about the ways in which um, the kind of post-war economic boom was really just a benefit to white families and in particular to white men. And that in large part, African-Americans were largely left out of it and, and remained impoverished despite the kind of high growth rates that the nation as a whole experienced. Um, added into this um, new kind of uh, computer modeling techniques, which really break through with the Limits to Growth Report of 1972, um, and perceptions of current and future scarcity of vital resources, which really hit home with the oil crisis in 1973. And there's a kind of widespread sense that, that growth has all these downsides and that it hasn't delivered its promises. And thus, perhaps it's time to think anew about what our economic goals and priorities should be. And that's really a, a widespread sense by the, the early and mid-1970s. That's very interesting. I, and I guess at the same time, um, the uh, you had the growth of uh, neoliberal thinking, neoliberal policies. You had the growth of neoliberal think tanks and the Adam Smith Institute in the UK, but the Heritage Foundation, the Cato Institute and so forth. So um, there were sections of, uh, I guess you could call them, you know, powerful uh, figures and organizations that uh, were, uh, weren't really, that, that were keen to continue to try and drive economic growth and, and, um, and various other, you know, allied kind of policies, presumably. Yeah, and I think one of the, one of the interesting things to note is that um, growth critics have thrived at, at times in which there seem to genuinely be limits to growth, where existing systems were not working as anticipated, and when the natural world seemed to be kind of throwing up significant blockages. And so, for example, in the, the early and mid-1970s, especially after the oil um, embargo of 1973, there was a real sense by many, not, not just sort of activists, but um, citizens, even leaders uh, across the world, that there were fundamental limits to economic growth. And that if in order to ensure kind of broad-based prosperity, there needed to be new approaches to international development, there needed to be a, a rewriting of the rules of the global economy, there needed to be ways in which countries could pursue alternative forms of, of energy and, and things of that sort. Um, one of the striking things about the late 1970s and early 1980s is how quickly what we think of as the kind of neoliberal revolution um, seeks first and foremost to push back on those notions. There need to be kind of alternatives pursued um, and instead doubles down on this notion that the growth is limitless. And you see this in a number of ways. One is the extent to which governments invest in all sorts of new um, sites for exploration in terms of finding more oil. Um, and those actually pay off in a big way in Europe with the discovery of massive reserves of oil in the North Sea in the early 1980s. Um, those um, reserves end up flooding the market in the 1980s, undercutting OPEC's price um, uh, price controlling powers and, and really reshape the politics of energy markets in the 1980s, such that there's really no longer fears of a, a fundamental limit to growth on the energy side of things. 
Um, likewise, so many of the kind of key figures in the, the neoliberal revolution, U.S. President Ronald Reagan, British Prime Minister Margaret Thatcher, um, preach uh, a, a kind of almost unbelievable positivity about the ability of their societies to produce growth once again. They argue that the, the path to growth is different than countries have done in the past, right? In, in the past, there were regulations, there was some degree of planning, governments owned um, controlling stakes and vital industries. And of course, Reagan and Thatcher will preach deregulation, privatization, and much else. But there is this kind of uh, almost preoccupation with believing that growth can return and that it should return. So that by the mid-1980s, um, again, once the, the global oil market has been reshaped, um, you see countries acting as if the 1970s had never really happened and, and trying to kind of imagine and pursue growth um, as uh, kind of fervently as they ever had, um, you know, with with real obvious consequences that, that we are living with today. <laughs> yes, yes. And, and where does uh, GDP fit in without going into the details of GDP and GNP and so forth? But um, this question of having this measure that the single measure to of, of, you know, economic welfare as kind of shorthand for, for you know, uh, all, all the, the good things that we want in terms of, you know, uh, uh, wealth and, uh, and 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 other things, but quite narrowly defined in an economic sense. Um, so, so GDP. How does that connect in with this this uh, focus on what you might call, I guess, the growth paradigm? Yeah, and so it, it fits in in a really crucial way, which is that in the nineteen sixties and nineteen seventies, when you have all of these growth critics questioning growth, many of them focus their ire on GNP and GDP. Um, because they believe that as long as policymakers are defining growth as increases in GNP and GDP, they will quite rightly just be incentivized, follow the incentives of making policies that simply increase GDP and GNP. And what these critics say is that, well, GDP and GNP do not effectively account for the destruction of uh, non-human nature. They do not effectively capture distributional issues and poverty issues within societies. And so as long as countries continue to put GNP and GDP front and center as the measure of their overall well-being and as the main marker of economic health, that of course we will expect to see a continued um, sort of decline of the societies that uh, we're living in, they say in the 1970s, and that we won't uh, see, for instance, greater focus on environmental protection, on inequality and, and much else. And so there's this big effort in the 1970s to try to find replacements for GNP and GDP. And, and much of what I write about are, are these sort of alternative metrics that different thinkers put forward. Um, Mahmoud Ulhaq, who I mentioned a, a little while ago, for instance, in the 1980s becomes uh, really adamant with creating an alternative to GDP that focuses ultimately on the capacity of humans to realize their full potential. He works really closely with his friend Amartya Sen um, and through the United Nations in the 1980s, and ultimately creates um, a, a pretty well-known metric today, the Human Development Index, which is meant to pay greater attention to the capacity of human beings to thrive in a society 
than to simply measure economic production. And that's kind of one example. There are also uh, attempts to quantify and account for environmental degradation in a variety of different ways. There are attempts to quantify unwaged, um, non-marketized household labor, especially labor performed by women that kind of escapes conventional enumeration to provide greater attention to the role that women play in terms of social reproduction in society. And there's all sorts of attempts to try to better measure inequality within countries as well. And so for so many of these growth critics in the 1970s, really the first step to getting to a world beyond growth is coming up with new measures that would more accurately sort of reflect the values of a, a an alternative way of, of sort of pursuing well-being in society than just narrowly focusing on economic growth. Yeah, I think that's fascinating just how much work that was going on and, and government commissions virtually as well. And, and uh, I, I know uh, Macron recently as well. Um, they haven't broke through, have they? They <laughs> Or have they? You know, um, well, I, I, I guess um, they, they, I want to come on to this topic uh, as well, which is uh, the, the, this question of uh, natural capital, because, again, there seems to be uh, quite a bit going on there as well. And in the UN uh, recently uh, announced a, uh, this framework uh, to, to integrate natural capital in, in economic reporting. Um, there seems to be quite a bit of going on uh, in preparation for COP26 and tying in with, with various other ways of, of of uh, you know natural measuring and 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 using natural capital frameworks to 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 deal with uh, the environmental problems we're facing. Yeah, it, it's 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 long been a fascinating source of debate, which is the extent to which um, really there's, there's two things. One is whether or not these metrics have any power, whether they've, they've quote unquote broken through. Um, and I could say a few words about that. Maybe we can come back to it. And two, there's a, a kind of broader normative question, which is um, whether this is the right way to go about attempting to produce better outcomes in society. That is to say, by coming up with better metrics that are more fully account for kind of all the things that we want to, to count for. Um, and, you know, for example, the, the, the natural capital accounting is a, I think, really um, valuable case study in this, um, just as a, as a bit of background. So natural capital, in a very crude fashion, relates to this old problem that if you cut down a forest um, to uh, turn the trees into timber, timber commodities for export, um, the timber that you export from that forest will add to your country's GDP. Um, but the fact that a forest no longer exists um, will not register. There's no way to account for what that means for the ecosystem, for all the creatures, human and non-human who live there, and so forth and so on. Um, really, over the last 30, 35 years, there have been a number of attempts to try to um, account for that natural capital loss, to put a value on the forest, to attempt to quantify in price terms the services that ecosystems provide. Um, uh, such that all of those can be read as signals on a market and that people can make more kind of prudent decisions about whether or not cutting down the forest is worthwhile um, in an economic sense to um, uh, export the timber for, for, um, uh, for increasing GDP and things of that sort. 
there's one really kind of strong line of criticism about this that emerges um, almost as soon as these approaches kind of uh, start coming out in the 1980s and 1990s, which argues that by attempting to quantify this activity, um, we've kind of already lost sight of the bigger picture, which is to say, ultimately, environmentalism provides a kind of moral language and, and sustains a series of ultimately moral arguments about what we should value, what we should not value, what we should protect, and what we should not protect. And when we begin to simply discuss the environment, the natural world, in terms of dollars and cents in a narrow economic way, we've really kind of defanged and undermined the strength of that moral argument. And that in many ways, you've already kind of given up the forest, so to speak, by attempting to quantify pardon me, natural capital in this way. And so there's all sorts of, I think, really powerful critiques of this kind of natural capital accounting, which is to say that um, ultimately all you've done is kind of open up a new horizon for the environment to be depleted and exploited and, and used in different sorts of ways. And that what is needed instead to create a, a, a more sustainable or, or viable future is to actually reclaim some of that moral language to say that some things should not be left to market devices and market solutions and market processes. And rather than attempting to quantify the value of a forest to simply state that it is in fact valuable and that value cannot be reduced to simple economic definitions of value, um, but that it has to have a kind of broader meaning and that instead countries should pass legislation that protects forests that limits the amount of carbon that can go into the atmosphere and to, that puts investments in other forms of energy, rather than simply sort of integrating everything um, in, a, in a frenzied way into the marketplace. Yeah, it seems to be going hand in hand with some sense that, that uh, regulation uh, doesn't work or regulation is not appropriate for these situations and that, uh, you know, it, it, it puts a lot uh, uh, of focus on, on the potential of markets in so many ways. Yeah, absolutely. And, and many would argue, too, is that it ultimately leads to um, uh, the kind of core flaw that so many growth critics see in GDP, which is that it implies that more is always good. More production, more consumption, more use, more waste, um, all of which is positive. And the idea with kind of greening GDP is that it, it many critics will argue, is that it, it, it sort of sustains that fundamental assumption that ultimately sort of pricing more things, producing more things, using more things, even if done in a, a more efficient or perhaps less immediately destructive way, that ultimately it's a kind of ever greater um, consumption and production that remains the ultimate goal. And what so many growth critics of the 60s and 70s argued, and indeed today what, what so many sort of thinkers and activists um, who advocate for degrowth style solutions argue is that um, sort of any kind of policy shift that doesn't ultimately displace this notion that ever greater production and consumption should be at the center of our economic lives um, then we'll just continue to face the same sort of problems that we do, albeit perhaps on slightly different scales, um, but that we really kind of miss an opportunity 
to rethink in a, in a more fundamental way what we value when we just continue to sort of assume that more is always better. Yeah, and it seems uh, embedded with a series of other ideas, uh, carbon offsets, um, and 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 the very perverse idea of uh, biodiversity offsets, which seems right. just such a a contradiction in in, in at, at the heart of it. The idea that you know interconnected natural systems can be you know offset uh, with, with in what what's happening in one country, destruction in one country uh, with with a completely different uh, you know separate, not connected uh, ecosystem in another country. But uh, these ideas. Uh, as well as the carbon markets, which is a, uh, another question and, and complex, and, and, and you know, into carbon pricing and so forth. But there seem to be a few ideas interconnected and embedded together in this natural capital. Yeah, and it, it also nicely captures, I think, one of the central tensions of cr- growth critics more broadly that they've long faced, um, which is that ultimately, um, you know, moving beyond growth seems to necessitate some degree of planning and organization and ultimately must rely fundamentally on collective action, sort of meaningful, deep, sustained international cooperation. Um, And yet, um, too often, all of that has ultimately been lacking. And in many ways, it's ultimately kind of run up against a, a kind of strong and persistent desire at the international level for democratic decision-making. And just as an example, in the, the early 1970s, um, a couple of the most sort of vocal growth critics um, in the Western world were um, the American economist Herman Daly um, uh, and the economist Kenneth Bolden, who both sort of recognized that in order to kind of transition to uh, more sort of environmentally friendly forms of economic activity, there needed to be robust regulations at the international level. There needed to be experts and expert panels and committees and organizations, um, more or less kind of helping countries plan resource use and and to develop really kind of robust uh, systems of um, resource conservation and, and things of that sort. And what they were so surprised by when they first started making these arguments was how some of the most, um, some of the strongest criticisms of them and their ideas came from the global South, um, from leaders and activists who claimed that that was a kind of imperialism in disguise, that it was an attempt by a, a handful of Western elites to try to sort of set the developmental path once again for the rest of the world. Um, and, and Daly and Bolding um, ultimately came to acknowledge that, that, you know, yes, in many ways, what they were proposing came across as imperial in nature and raised really thorny questions of, about how to ensure that countries felt enfranchised and could make choices for the benefit of their citizens, but to do so in a way that accorded with global imperatives um, was something that they, they really struggled to come up with. And, and frankly, did not come up with really good solutions for what that would look like. But I think what we see today is a kind of similar process of, of uh, you know, recognizing the need for sustained international cooperation, global standards, um, global investment systems um, that respect national sovereignty in such a way that they don't, that, that the kind of global agreements don't generate more 
backlash um, than comedy. Yeah, and I guess uh, an important part of it is who's sitting at the table. And, you know, the, the large corporations are uh, certainly uh, driving, uh, spearheading a lot of the, the momentum on, on, on the SDGs and, and large financial institutions as well. And the, the new financial architecture around investing, uh, you know, private capital in, in the global south and so forth. Um and that's 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 an important question, I guess, which comes to how, how would the the uh, these measures change? You know, I mean, presumably that the people sitting around the table making these decisions that, uh, you know, uh, international inst- uh, multilateral institutions, uh, governments and, and, and you know, and, and, and big business. Yeah, that's a that's a really interesting question. And it, it, it strikes me that. Um, you know, one of the flaws that I ultimately uh, argued so many growth critics held um, was that theirs was a, a, a very kind of elite driven notion of politics and political criticism. Um, and by that, what I mean is that so many of the growth critics were themselves uh, elite educated experts. They were incredibly skilled and in many ways very prescient about identifying the technical flaws in GNP making really powerful kind of um, moral and intellectual arguments about the flaws of growth and much else. But they were really not focused on widespread political organizing. Um, There was not much of a focus at all on mass politics, about building movements and social movement organizations and things of that sort, doing the really nitty gritty work of politics to generate kind of sustained pressure at the grassroots level um, really anywhere to advocate for um, the new metrics they were coming up with. Um, and in fact, I think today, you know, our problem now is not that of the 1970s. In the 1970s, there were few alternative metrics available to activists compared to GDP. Um, today, our alternative metrics are plentiful. There are thousands and thousands of alternative metrics that we could adopt um, that are really sophisticated and really clever. The UN has a number of them. Um, Many independent researchers have come up with all sorts of different ways to kind of value and and measure well-being, to describe it. Um, What we still lack, though, on a necessary scale is the kind of political mobilization to advocate for more seats at the table. We've seen some increases over the last decade in, say, Um, Voting rights reform at the International Monetary Fund, the IMF, has opened up a little bit. Um, But in many places, you you still see um, institutions and organizations that quite naturally reflect their kind of elite technocratic origins. And so I think that until we develop um, a kind of more widespread um, sort of political movement to uh, agitate for and ultimately proclaim a, a kind of more democratic form of policymaking, it's going to be difficult to see the ways in which sort of new metrics take hold. I don't think this will ultimately be an elite different process. I, I think it will you know, follow more from the examples of the, the young climate activists and the extent to which they're able to kind of sustain and make, maintain the, the organizations they've created thus far and, and to really grow them as political forces before we see any meaningful changes. Yeah, very interesting. Uh, it's a slightly abstract kind of area for many people, I suppose. So um, difficult to get, you know, to, I suppose to, but, but, you know, to motivate people and, 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 uh, but yet so, uh, so tremendously important. I just wanted to t- ask one final question. Um, and, uh, 
uh, I'm interested in the analogy, and I didn't see the, uh, much in, in in the book about this, but the the you know the, this idea of economic growth and uh, the pervasiveness of of the desire for governments uh, to to achieve it hand in hand with corporations who have a relentless mm. uh, uh, you know fiduciary role in many ways to continue to grow or to you know maximize shareholder returns and so forth. Is there a connection between you know corporations and their growth needs and the relentless growth and and I guess you know finance behind that, but also uh, with with those ideas of, of economic growth embedded in in, in governments? Um, it, yeah, absolutely. And if I could um, also just just really quickly come back to you, to your previous point, which is to say that you know, these ideas are really abstract. And certainly if you talk to anyone on the street about the latest advances in economic and environmental accounting, their eyes will <laughs> understandably glaze over. But I will say, I think the, the experience of the last year and a half has created the opportunity for political leaders and activists and others to make these sort of issues much more relatable, which is to say the experience of the pandemic of um, losing loved ones, of watching people um, suffer on a wide scale. Uh, likewise, the experience of lockdowns, having so many people all of a sudden having to transition to full-time caregiver roles in a way that wasn't often compensated. Um, I think attune people to the things in our lives that we don't put a price on, um, spending time with loved ones, caring for uh, the elderly and the very young things of that sort that are absolutely vital for, for our individual thriving, for our community thriving, for our, our global thriving, um, that sort of making those connections between that which we don't account for, have not account for, um, and yet we now recognize as being so vital, I, I think opens up some political possibilities. Yeah. Um, but but I, I think one ongoing hindrance, and this is connected to the final thought, is that you know, one of the features of this neoliberal era is the extent to which very large corporations um, have not only grown in wealth, um, but have adopted an a, approach to um, their own governance that prioritizes their shareholders and returns to shareholders uh, above all else. Um, and as many um, climate writers and thinkers acknowledge, um, uh, until that changes and until there's a widespread sort of political mobilization and a, a rewriting of um, regulations and rules um, within and about corporations, there's going to be very little incentive for corporations to, to make the types of changes that might produce a, a more sustainable planet. You know, price signals uh, sort of driven by the market can only go so far. And I think fundamentally, you know, in the, in the story that I tell, you know, one of the great features of the 1980s and the 1990s is, is just how many multinational corporations came into being and, and how wealthy so many of them grew um, to be. And that until there is a sort of political attempts to, to rein them in, you know, either through policies like a wealth tax, and I think the recent move on the part of the G7, G8, to begin just the, the kind of early stages discussion of coordinating something like, uh, uh, you know, policies on, on corporate tax rates, um, something like perhaps a, a, a wealth tax a la um, Thomas Piketty and others would be one way to do it. Um, likewise, simply coming up with 
more robust national and international rules around trade um, and investment and uh, investment dispute mechanisms and things of that sort um, would be another way in which to try to simply curtail the power uh, of, of corporations and those very much invested in maintaining the status quo. And until that happens, I think, you know, no new metric alone is going to bring about the types of changes that so many of us um, want to see. Uh, but very interesting. And, and to end on a rare positive note, uh, maybe um, we have seen some big changes recently. Uh, we'll wait to see how that all unfolds. You know, a court in, in, in Holland um, telling mm. Shell that it needed to reduce its uh, carbon emissions, I think, by 2030 by something like 48, 50%, 48%, something like that. Uh, irrespective of forget about reduce your responsibilities, forget about shareholders, you know, clean it up you're responsible. Uh, and at the same time, uh, Exxon have, uh, you know, the, the, the activist investors brought some new, new, new board members, still from a corporate perspective, but really against the will of, you know, one of the largest, most powerful, historically, uh, corporations in the world. So there are some signs, maybe, that there are changes uh, coming, uh, hopefully, on, on this front. Yeah, absolutely. And, and um, again, the fact that there seems, at least from my perspective, to be a growing recognition um, because there's been so much great, um, you know, really cutting edge journalism, you know, lots of sort of robust discussion on podcasts like yours and, and so many others that have raised awareness that we're starting to see the kind of political momentum and, and movement building for these sorts of policies. And the, the hope is that these don't just become one-offs and exceptions to the rule but become a source of optimisms that activists will draw upon and, and will use to kind of generate similar changes and, and to, to make similar investments and, 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 um, uh, and sort of political claims about in the future. What's, what's next for you, Stephen? Um, I am currently exploring the environmental history of US foreign policy and the American empire and its attendant consequences in the world. Um, and I'm going to uh, look forward very much to continue to exploring the ways in which um, how we measure the world shapes the way we act into it as well. Fascinating. Fascinating. I wish you the very best of success with that. And I, I think I'd, I'd like to have you back to discuss that because it's a topic not often discussed and uh, quite uh, uh, eye-opening the scale of, of uh, carbon emissions associated just with the US military <laughs> um, but uh, and, and uh, the history I can imagine as well. Um, I, I, I wish you the best with that. And thank you so much for joining me today. A fascinating discussion. I really enjoyed that. Covered a lot of ground and I uh, really appreciate it. I enjoyed it as well. Thank you so much for having me on. I really appreciate it. If you enjoyed this interview, we think you'll enjoy Cambridge geographer Mike Hume's new book, Climate Change. In Climate Change, Hume makes a powerful case that the power of climate change as an idea can only be grasped from a vantage point that embraces the social sciences, humanities and natural sciences. The book synthesizes Hume's career work on climate change. In 10 carefully crafted chapters, he presents climate change as an idea with a past, a present and a future and illustrates the different ways political, social and cultural movements in today's world seek to make sense of it and how they act accordingly. Thank you for listening to the Sustainability Agenda podcast. I hope you found it interesting. It would be great if you could leave a review and share the podcast on social media. You can sign up at iTunes to make sure you don't miss any future episodes.